serve as the conduit through which all other change is made possible. You cannot tackle economic insecurity. You cannot fight for better climate change legislation. You cannot protect access to criminal justice reform. The things we want to see made real become so because of voting. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. You just heard the voice of Stacey Abrams, who is perhaps the most prominent and important voting rights activist in America. Abrams was talking there during an interview with The Guardian about why she's made voting rights and access to the ballot her mission after narrowly losing her bid for governor of Georgia in 2018. Now, most Americans view the right to vote and to free and fair elections as pretty fundamental to who we are as a nation and as a democracy. But that right to vote was not part of the U.S. Constitution when it was written, and it was not an oversight. Voting rights were intentionally left out for reasons that we are going to explore today as we continue our WDET book club exploration and discussion of the Constitution and the ways it affects equality and inequality in the United States. Think about the words that Stacey Abrams used in that quote. Access. Fundamental. These are the things that we think about when we talk about the right to vote. And they're not just fundamental to free and fair elections. As Abrams said, they're fundamental to all of the issues that we like to think that people in this country can have an effect over. It's a critical part of our democracy. And I would be remiss if I didn't note the ways in which even today that right to vote is under attack in many states. We are still having to have the argument about protecting the right to vote for everyone in 2021 in America. And that's where we begin the conversation today. And I've got two really great guests who are experts in this field to help us shape this conversation. Theodore Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, Theodore, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's great to be here as usual. And also with us is Bertrand Ross, who is a professor of law at the University of Virginia and a constitutional law expert who focuses on election law and voting rights. Uh, Professor Ross, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's good to be here, and thanks for having me. So, uh, Professor Ross, I'm going to start with the history here. As I mentioned in the intro, voting rights were not addressed or explicitly included in the Constitution when it was first, first written and adopted. And free and fair elections are still not really guaranteed under current constitutional law, even in 2021. You say that, quote, part of the democratic struggle in the United States has been undoing some of the anti-democratic features of the original Constitution. Let's talk about why the authors of the Constitution neglected to tackle voting rights and embrace uh, and embraced instead these anti-democratic ideas. Yeah, you have to remember what the what the um, Constitution was responding to. The Constitution was responding to a tumultuous decade in the 1780s um, in the states in which revolutionary war debts left many people in a pretty depressed state economically. And so you saw the people um, seeking from their state governments different forms of debt relief through the exercise of voice, through petitions and 
voting when they could. And that led to um, some rebellions in states, such as the Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts. And what the framers of the Constitution were concerned about, among other things, was a little bit too much democracy, too much participation by the people in governance that posed a threat to property. Now, those who were involved in framing the Constitution were the property elite. They were the leading proponents of the Constitution. And so they sought to set up a government that provided protection for property rights against the wishes of the masses. So even if we leave aside the women who were denied the vote because they were seen as too dependent on the men and incapable of voting, or the African-Americans and the enslaved individuals in the South who were denied the vote for obvious racist reasons, even amongst the white polity, there was a sense that only the propertied few should be able to participate in the, in the republic. Now, at the time, republicanism was seen as distinct from democracy. Republicanism was seen as a form of self-government, but a form of self-government that would be limited to the virtuous and talented few at the expense of the many who were denied the opportunity to participate actively um, in the governing structure and in voting. Mm. And uh, Ted Johnson, uh, the the next 245 years uh, mark a lot of progress from that point uh, when the Constitution was adopted. And yet, as I noted in the intro, we're still fighting about how to protect the right to vote for everyone. And fundamentally, I think we still disagree in large measure about how sacred that right is and who ought to who ought to have access to the ballot and under what circumstances. It, it really is a defining part of uh, the debate and the discussion in this country, even today. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, I, there was a Pew poll that came out a few days ago that suggested something like um, a third or 40% or so of Republicans now think that voting should be a privilege that um, that should be earned and that could be re- revoked. Uh, and so even the notion that voting is something fundamental to, to democracy, sort of superficially, I think we all agree. And then once people start losing elections or their preferred candidates don't win, then suddenly they're okay with the rules being bent a little bit uh, in service of their, their worldview or their political uh, objectives. So here's the thing that voting has, is, elections are always about uh, parties trying to shape the electorate in a way that gives them the best chance to win. If a party thinks that expanding the electorate is going to help them win elections, then they will support uh, an expansive conception of voting rights. If parties think that shrinking the electorate is going to help them win elections, then they will support a view that says uh, voting uh, should be a a, um, a a right that has to be worked in order to be exercised. That, you know that you have to like work for the the the, um, the access to the ballot, whether that's registration or poll taxes or whatever means they come up with. So the, whether or not the, the right is actually fundamental, we can see what we really believe based on the policy preferences of those who hold power. And more times than not, um, it's not really about a fundamental right. It's about what access or what sort of access to the ballot is going to help my party, my team win elections. And uh, and then voting policy tends to emanate from those calculations and not from a common universal universal understanding that voting is a fundamental right that should be protected for all. Yeah. Yeah. So I really want to talk about voting rights in in two distinct uh, categories. One is the, the, the march toward equality along racial lines uh, with voting, 
which uh, is is a fight I think we are probably still having in uh, in America. And then I want to talk about it along gender lines, and the narrative there I think unfolds very very differently. Uh, but let's start with with race, and uh, of course the first mention in the Constitution about race and voting comes with the Civil War amendments, 13, 14, and uh, 15. Uh, Professor Ross, talk about how important, uh, especially the 14th and 15th Amendments are, to the conversation about expanding the franchise uh, to African Americans and prohibiting discrimination in voting along, along racial lines. Yeah, they are critically important. And I would say that the Reconstruction Amendments marks a shift from thinking of ourselves as a republic to thinking of ourselves as a democracy, um, at least under the Constitution. And so the 14th and 15th Amendments establish what I consider um, uh, the multiracial democracy, or is designed to establish a multiracial democracy, in which um, the right to vote cannot be denied on, the, on account or abridged on account of race or color. And the framers of the 14th and 15th Amendment, I would put emphasis on the 15th Amendment um, because that was actually the most controversial amendment amongst um, the Reconstruction Amendment um, um, debate in the Reconstruction Amendment debates. And what they were focusing on was to construct a right to vote, but they understood the right to vote as also providing the opportunity for office holding, the opportunity for broader participation in the governing structure to integrate a means by which you would integrate legislatures. Um, and, 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 and they set, and they set out on, on this expansive right to vote that was ultimately, um, decimated in the years that followed. As we saw in the, in the, um, redemption era following Reconstruction, there were, um, efforts, successful efforts in the South to deprive African-Americans of the vote through different types of voting devices, whether it be different forms of, of, of poll taxes or different forms of restrictions, um, such as early emergence of felon disfranchisement laws that were um, had a clear design and, and, and effect of denying and depriving African-Americans of the vote. And we have been struggling to overcome that redemption period ever since with the Voting Rights Act of 65 representing an important and critical innovation in that cause. And uh, Ted Johnson, it takes almost 100 years after the Civil War amendments for Congress to decide that it needed to come in and act to assure that racial discrimination in voting uh, didn't happen. That's a really long time. And I think sometimes when we think about the right to vote in America and we think about our history, it's lost on people that a constitutional amendment, which is the highest form of revision in our democracy and our most important legal document, uh, it, it didn't achieve equality along racial lines uh, in voting, and that it took this tremendous act of Congress in the 1960s to give real power to the words that were in the Constitution. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, as um, was just mentioned that, you know, once the 13, 14, 15th amendments are passed, you have these newly freed and newly enfranchised black men changing the politics of many states from which they were previously excluded from citizenship and certainly from the ballot box. And there is a, a backlash 
to that increased political power of these black men, which leads into the, the sort of the redemption period. And that backlash doesn't stop once state houses are recaptured. That backlash continues, as you said, for you know 90 years until we get the Voting Rights Act of 65 and, um, and begins to sort of re-enfranchise those disenfranchised black voters in the South, black men in the South, and uh, and then black women after the 19th Amendment. In the North, there's kind of a different thing happening. Once the Great Migration happens, starting 1900, 1910 or so, you get a lot of voters in the South, who black voters in the South who couldn't vote, moving to the North where voting restrictions are much more relaxed and they, they have access to the ballot um, in local and state races, and they begin to change the politics of those states. And so suddenly the black electorate becomes a valuable entity in Northern and some of the Midwestern states and completely disenfranchised and, or, you know, almost entirely disenfranchised in the Southern states. And now there's this mismatch of, of what the electorate looks like nationally. And usually when states begin to do these kinds of things, the federal government sooner or later has to, to get involved, especially on something like voting that's so inherent to the, the rights and privileges of citizenship. And, uh, and a, you know, if the declaration says that we're a nation where government derives its power from the consent of the governed, voting is how we give that consent. And so the Voting Rights Act of 65 tries to make the nation uh, a bit more whole on the question of voting by uh, protecting civil rights or, or extending voting rights to those who've been disenfranchised. The last thing I wanna say on this though, is that we can see in black Americans voting behavior um, just how intense the fight for voting rights and frankly civil rights writ large has been in, in the nation's history uh, and certainly since post-civil war, uh, except for maybe three or four presidential elections in the early part of the 20th century, Black voters have almost always voted it overwhelmingly in the same fashion for the same party. And they are always voting against the party that is looking to uh, reduce or not enforce civil rights protections and for the party that makes civil rights protections uh, either a prominent part of its platform or at least signals that it's um, that that it will be important and something that they implement. So black voters, black voters have always voted for the party that would look to extend voting rights, extend civil rights, and then protect those rights, and have never really been able to engage in the American democracy with the full agency of their worldviews around taxes or energy or education or healthcare, because the voting rights fight has been so central to our participation in democracy that um, it requires that we vote as a bloc for, for most presidential and congressional elections in order to protect this right to vote mm -hmm. that was supposed to be guaranteed in the Constitution over 100 years ago and supposed to have been guaranteed by uh, congressional legislation 50 years ago. And we still see it under attack, both at the states and in some unfortunate rulings at the Supreme Court. And uh, Ted, I also like to remind people when I'm talking about this of how long it took to get there, but also how recent it was that we achieved this at least statutory parity. Uh, and I, I, I use the example of my own father, who was not able to vote in his home state of Mississippi until the Voting Rights Act was passed. And, you know, I always say this is not some ancestor I read about in a, in a book somewhere. This is, uh, this is the first man I knew. Uh, this is the person who helped to raise me. And he experienced the kind of, you know, violent, I think, often uh, uh, discrimination in the South that prevented African-Americans 
from voting. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're talking now about the value of the VRA and when we're talking about these proposals in many states that seem to try to push us back to an earlier time, that that time was not a long, long time ago. That time was just a few generations uh, in our past. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, and in the last decade, uh, certainly since the uh, Shelby County uh, ruling in 2013, but even, you know, really since President Obama's election, we've seen states begin to play with voting regulations and statutes in ways that advantage uh, one party, usually the party in power, and, and more times than not, it's been Republican parties in the state assemblies, and, uh, and make it a little bit more difficult for those constituencies that helped Obama win to participate in elections. Uh, and what's also interesting is that not only is the voting rights fight recent uh, in terms of disenfranchisement and then sort of um, finally becoming part of the electorate. And not only does the fight continue in some of the state statutes and Supreme Court rulings, but the resilience of voters to um, face up to all the hurdles and barriers that states and, and the government erects in order to insist on their inclusion in democracy also continues. So despite all of the voter suppression laws we've seen across the country easily in the last decade, um, last presidential election in November, we saw the highest voter turnout uh, among black voters generally uh, in the last over a century. Black turnout was especially high in flipped states from 2016, like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Michigan, and certainly in Georgia. So um, there's this sense that there is no such, you know, voter suppression is a myth because look at how much higher uh, black turnout or some of these supposedly oppressed communities have been recently. Mm -hmm. But the resilience of a people doesn't suggest that the attempt to deny their constitutional rights isn't in full effect. It isn't uh, a, a strategy that's being employed. Um, both the fight continues and the resilience continues. And that's frankly the story of our country since its inception. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about voting rights. We are going to talk about the history of gender equality as it relates to voting rights in the U.S. Constitution and our laws. We will also get to you, the listeners, what you think about the right to vote in the United States. Uh, are we where we should be in protecting the right to vote? What do you think of the attempts in many states to cabin people's rights to vote, uh, impose more restrictions on who can vote and when? Are they hearkening back to a time when not everybody enjoyed the rights of the franchise. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're continuing our WDET book club discussions about the Constitution and the ways it both frames and sometimes frustrates our discussions about equality in 2021. Uh, my guests today are Ted Johnson, who's a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, and Bertrand Ross, who is a professor of law at the University of Virginia, 
and a constitutional law expert who focuses on election law and voting rights. Voting rights is the subject that we're looking at today, the history of voting rights in the Constitution, in law, and the progress that we've made since the beginning when the framers excluded an awful lot of people from the franchise, not by accident, quite intentionally, in fact, uh, to today, when I think the presumption is that uh, everybody who's an American ought to have access to the ballot, even though we continue to argue about uh, what that access looks like and what limitations can or should be put on those rights. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and tell us where you think we are with the right to vote in America. And here's a question that I'd love to hear uh, the answer to from our listeners. You think that the right to vote should be built more strongly into the Constitution in a way that really guarantees free and fair elections for everyone. Are we still short of that sort of constitutional goal of really protecting voting rights across the board? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, and uh, we can include your comments in the show that way. Also, if you are enjoying this book club discussion this summer, uh, there's something happening tonight that I think you would really, really get a kick out of. Uh, we are going to give you a chance to come out and share your constitutional knowledge at WDET's We the People Trivia Night that is at Hopcat in Midtown Detroit tonight at 7 p.m. WDET music hosts Rob Reinhart and Nick Austin are going to be your MCs for what will be a really fun night of constitutional curiosity. You can play in person at Hopcat, or you can actually join virtually from the comfort of your own home. You just need to register to play at WDET.org slash events. Okay, uh, before we get to listeners, uh, I, I want to talk a little about the history of voting rights and gender uh, and equality. Uh, Bertrell Ross, uh, women are not protected explicitly in the Constitution uh, as it's adopted initially, and it takes a long time uh, to get to the point where uh, where they are. Uh, the 19th Amendment, of course, uh, prevents uh, people from being denied the right to vote uh, on the on the basis of gender, but. What's interesting when you compare, I guess, that journey to the journey on race is once that amendment is passed and, uh, and, and adopted, uh, that pretty much ends much of the debate about gender. And we don't have that debate today. There isn't a real uh, effort uh, in America by, by anyone, really, to deny that. And so that's a real, that's a real contrast, I guess, to the the narrative on race, which continues to haunt us in in real ways in 2021. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the closer proximity between women and men in terms of women often being in the same household as men mm -hmm. um, can change the dynamics in terms of, of the voting rights discussion. Um, in terms of prior to the to the 19th Amendment, the the sense um, that um, men had were that these Victorian sensibilities, um, these sexist notions of, of the place of the woman in the home um, and out of politics, because politics was just too, you know, 
dirty or just not fit for women. Um, those notions kind of carried some weight. There's some weight notes associated with the idea that women were dependent on men, and so men would represent them um, through a form of virtual representation in politics. But once we get to the female empowerment movements that that um, that, that um, start to emerge in the middle of the 19th century, have carried forward um, through different sort of waves of feminist movements, even to the present, those ideas get rejected. And to the extent that when the 19th Amendment's passed, this idea that women are dependent, that women don't belong in politics, has been um, has been relegated to the sense that it's, it's old-fashioned, it's outdated, and that we need women to be an active part of our policy. Now, the, there's still a struggle, though, ongoing, and that struggle is perhaps less visible and less noticed, and it has to do with female office holding. Hmm. Despite the fact that women make up half the population, they make up a much smaller proportion of office holders in the United States. Um, in Congress, they've made up around 25 to 30 percent over the last um, um decade, which has been a high, um, whereas, um, again, they, that's a much smaller proportion of the population that they make up. And I think that these are the, that fact um, is, is based on um, differential opportunities to run for office and also differential networks in, sort, in terms of campaign finance and funding opportunities, but also in terms of people's attitudes, in terms of who are the ideal leaders. How do people understand either implicitly or explicitly what leaders are supposed to look like? And that has a gender orientation to it. And that, as a result, has had an effect on on, on female office holding that continues to this day. It's a struggle that we continue to try to overcome. Mm-hmm. And there's also kind of an overlap of the of the narratives about racial equality in voting and gender equality in voting in the sense that Uh, A lot of the activists who pushed for the passage of the 19th Amendment were, of course, African-American women who, like other women, wanted to see that barrier fall. And even though the 19th Amendment was adopted, those women, because they were African-American, were still denied the right to vote until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in uh, the 1960s. And in that way... Uh, there's this kind of bitter irony, I guess, to to the 19th. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things to to account for is that just like they are today, women, black women, are the backbones, the foundation of the African-American community. And so when we saw the struggle for um, the 15th Amendment, there was a strong push and call for African-American women to attach female voting rights, voting rights for women, and a voting rights amendment for women to that 15th Amendment. But ultimately, there was a decision made, negotiations made to exclude women from that project of voting rights. And so the struggle continued for the next 50 years, and there was quite a bit of tension between these suffrage movements, um, women's suffrage movements, and and um, and sort of this idea that African-American men should govern and should take an important role in terms of representing African-American women. Um, and so what we see in terms of emerging at the time of the Voting Rights Act um, is, is this emergence of, of, of black women as being an important political force from the 1960s to the present. And so Stacey Abrams, that you had um, a recording of earlier, 
earlier. She is an example of black women empowerment that has been central to the expression of voice of the African-American communities. Because the fact is, there are many laws in place that have disfranchised disproportionately African-American men. And I'm speaking of laws that disfranchise persons with felony convictions, even after they have completed their terms in Mm -hmm. prison. And because we know that there is this um, um, racial orientation to the criminal justice system, African-American men have have been denied voices in ways that are particularly harmful to the African-American community. women have to have have had to step in to fill that political void. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you think about the state of voting rights in America, the work that we still have ahead, uh, the work that's already uh, taken place. Uh, Are you happy with the way things are in terms of what the U.S. Constitution does for voting rights uh, in our country? Or are you somebody who thinks uh, maybe we ought to be talking about another amendment that might more explicitly protect the right to vote? Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, and we will uh, try to uh, include you in the conversation that way. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on your mind? Timely conversation. Thank you. Um, To to, uh, steal a line from a deceased politician, can only say the struggle endures. Uh, I've thought in recent years a lot about how we run elections and how our peer countries, uh, two dozen to 30 or so mature, wealthy democracies. And in the U.S., elections seem to be confounded by uh, race and over-reliance on uh, political actors. Uh, obviously, your guests have talked about the role of race, but in most of our peer countries, the question of where electoral district boundaries will be and who gets the right to vote are purely technical questions administered by either nonpartisan commissions or civil servants. Mm-hmm. If you meet the minimal standards to vote, you're eligible to vote. Uh, and in this country, we, we, we've let political actors manage this process, and as your guests have correctly pointed out, political actors will attempt to jimmy the system for their benefit, whether it's Democrats in Maryland or Republicans in North Carolina. And we need to follow the lead of our peer countries and take this role away from politicians uh, so that uh, and and obviously get race out of it because mm-hmm. it's not only hurt black people, but in our history it's also hurt First Nation people and uh, uh, Hispanic and Asian immigrants sure. to the U.S. Yeah. at various times and in various places yeah. have been adversely affected by the unwillingness of white people, to be frank, to let non-white people vote. Right. I'll listen to your guests on the phone. And the uh, I really appreciate the call and the the, the provocative uh, the provocative thoughts there, uh, Ted Johnson. I think you were talking earlier about this idea of the ways in which politicians see voting rights as connected to their own fortunes uh, in 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 office. Uh, but but I think Ed's even going further and saying that look, if you take away uh, the the power that politicians have essentially to choose their voters, right, rather than having voters choose them, 
that that you, you get closer to some ideal of equality. And here in Michigan, uh, we're actually embarking on that very experiment. Uh, in 2018, voters here decided to hand the process of dividing up voters into districts to a nonpartisan commission, or I should say a bipartisan uh, commission, and take it away from uh, from politicians. That does connect, I think, to the to the arguments and, and the discussions about equality. Yeah, it does. Um, so just a, a couple quick notes. The first is um, when, it, when it comes to liberal democracies around the world, um, we are the l- longest living constitutional democracy and one of the largest uh, democracies, period. Um, one of the most diverse and certainly have a unique history relative to other large uh, diverse democracies that, that exist out there. So part of that history is that we uh, delegate the carrying out of, of elections to the states, which is to say there are more than 50 sets of rules for how elections are conducted, how voters must register, residency requirements, all these sorts of things in one nation here in the United States. Because if you move from Virginia to North Carolina, there's a whole set of administrative actions you have to take to legally participate in North Carolina's election, even though you were eligible to participate while a resident of Virginia, for example. So that is one thing that makes us distinct, that your geographical location changes how you can access the right to vote and that there are more than 50 sets of rules here. Uh, so that's that's a problem. Uh, some folks have suggested things like um, making election day a, a federal holiday it will incentivize people to go vote or um, or sort of these, non, these uh, redistricting commissions. These are all good ideas, but it doesn't change the fact that there is no one single set of rules for this right we call fundamental to participate in elections in the United States. And so um, even if we tinker with the systems, we may make elections more fair at the local and state levels, but the the national right to vote, to participate in elections will be left unaddressed. Um, two, uh, one last quick point on this, Some, many states have uh, the right to vote in their state constitutions. Mm-hmm. So while it's not in the federal constitution, that right to vote is is extended to some extent by the states. So there, there's, it's, and then, you know, you get the post-Civil War right amendment. So there, it's not like politicians and parties can just run roughshod over the right, but they have become very, very crafty in figuring out the loopholes so that they can construct an electorate that is uh, more advantageous to, to them than the other party they're running against. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Ed, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Marge in Macomb Township. Marge, what's on your mind? Well, the way I look at it, the right to vote is, t- is tied into every other vote, that, our right that we have. For example, one is women's rights. If only men can vote on what women can do, women don't have any say over their own bodies. Mm. If only men can tax... They can tax the heck out of uh, properties in an area where they don't want other people to live. Mm-hmm. Um, it just goes on and on and on. If whoever has the power to vote has the power to do many other things. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Marge, that is uh, an absolutely uh, on point uh, observation and comment, and that's uh, that gets to the the sort of essence of what uh, Stacey Abrams was saying in the quote. Uh, that we played uh, at the at the top of uh, at the top of uh, the hour. So I really appreciate uh, you taking taking note of that and and adding to uh, 
the thoughts there. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our WDET Book Club discussion about the U.S. Constitution, looking at voting rights in particular. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for tuning in, talking with Ted Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, and with Bertrell Ross, who is a professor of law at the University of Virginia, a constitutional law expert who focuses on election law and on voting rights. Uh, We are having another discussion as part of our WDET book club, uh, which is looking this summer at the U.S. Constitution and the ways it uh, ensures equality, the way it sometimes frustrates equality. Uh, Today, we are looking specifically at voting rights, one of the most fundamental parts of our democracy and certainly, I think, of our cultural values, the idea of free and fair elections. The question is, uh, how free and fair are elections today? How sacred is the right to vote? Uh, How far have we come from the initial adoption of the Constitution, which left a lot of people out? of voting rights protections. Um, As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, make comments that uh, we'll try to include in the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, um, I want to talk a little about uh, some of the things that are going on right now in Congress. There is a bill, H.R. 1, which is the For the People Act, which aims to put into place some federal standards for voting access. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act looks to restore the provisions of the VRA that were gutted in uh, the Shelby County uh, decision a few years ago. Um, I want to talk about that, that bill in the context of uh, the debate about the Constitution itself. Is it is what we're facing now a statutory problem that could be fixed by Congress, or is it a constitutional problem uh, that we ought to be going back to the text itself and thinking of ways uh, to change it that would maybe end all of these arguments uh, about about voting rights? Uh, Bertrand Ross, I will start. Uh, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I think that in terms of short-term um, solutions to the voter suppression and partisan um, use or partisan manipulation of democracy that we face right now. The H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, um, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, are important interventions. Um, what they would do, <clears throat> what they would do is, 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 is to 
establish protections at the federal level um, with respect to access to the ballot by providing provisions for absentee ballots, rules in terms of early voting. They would set up nonpartisan um, redistricting commissions, um, and they would restore provisions of the Voting Rights Act that were gutted by Shelby County, as you mentioned. Um, now, the, the, the challenge, however, is that um, in Congress under the under the um, Constitution, Article One, Section Four has the authority to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections. States have primary authority, but Congress has oversight and regulatory authority with respect to federal elections. So it's completely within congressional power to enact this law. But why I'd say it's also a constitutional solution is that because Congress has this power, a future Congress that is um, that is controlled by a different partisan majority who may be more interested in suppressing the vote than expanding the vote can simply repeal the For the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or um, or limit its effect. And so for a permanent solution, we need to go back to the Voting Rights Act to think about adopting provisions that provide protection for the fundamental right to vote as a positive right rather than something that's protected against discrimination against particular um, on, particular, on the basis of particular characteristics. And it's only through those means that we can feel comfortable um, that these protections will be secured um, in a more, on a more permanent basis. Hmm. Uh, Ted Johnson, you were talking about the protections that exist in some state constitutions for voting rights. Of course, that's not uh, universal. Uh, and and in states uh, now, we see all of this activity around the idea of trying to limit access uh, to the ballot. Do we need to be thinking about uh, the Constitution and whether it needs amending to make sure that uh, these arguments don't don't keep taking place? Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, and it's for, you know, Reverend William Barber has said that um, Jim Crow didn't die. He went to law school and now we're fighting <laughs> James Crow Esquire because a lot of the tech, the, the violence and some of these more explicitly racist techniques that were used in the Jim Crow era are, are resurfacing in very sophisticated legal techniques and political um, techniques to have the same effect of reducing some groups ability to participate in elections without the explicit ugliness of, of like the of the overt racism so and it, you know the reason this sort of needs constitutional protection um, is because even if the right to vote is granted in state constitutions many like in the state of Virginia the next line is but if you've been convicted of a felony your that right is now revoked unless it's you've been given special pardon by the governor mm-hmm. so you know that which the state gives the state can also uh, take away and that creates this patchwork of voting laws and regulations in the country. The other part of this is, and this is something the Supreme Court has weighed in on recently, or actually decided that it wasn't their place to weigh in on, it's that if a party does something that gives them partisan advantage, but it also has the effect of um, a, causing racial inequality in access to the ballot, or has a racially disparate effect on the electorate, that as long as, if you cannot prove that it was done for racist reasons, then the Supreme Court said just a couple of terms ago that partisanship and, and how they jerry-rig um, districts or these sorts of things, that's not a matter for the courts to decide. If the people don't like what the politicians are doing, they have a remedy. It's the vote. You know, vote them out of office. But if they've jerry-rigged the thing so that people's votes 
are marginalized or prevented from folks are prevented from participating at all, then the vote actually isn't the remedy that it should be to get out uh, some of these unprincipled folks. So the, the in order to address some of the inequality we're seeing in our voting rights laws and, and protections, we have to address the issue of partisanship because a lot of the things that are done on a partisan basis based on the way our parties are presently constructed um, have racially disparate impacts that end up hurting the same communities that were harmed in uh, you know before the Voting Rights Act of 65 was passed. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Al in Pontiac. Al, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Uh, my, my comment is, um, enjoying the conversation here, my comment is that while the attempts to suppress the appeal is made coded to race, even though they don't do the overt, ugly racism. It is, in a, it is using race, but particularly demographics and particularly economic status. So the real point of this suppression effort is uh, to harm working people and to harm their voice. It, it probably pretty much has been that throughout the history of this country when only landed um, white men could vote and then more people were included. But the ability to vote really depends on your economic status. If you work a shift or you work hourly and you can't get off of work, how are you going to vote? If you can't get an access to a drop box, how are you going to vote? So I think the ultimate goal here is economic, that the voice mm. of um, the lower classes is being suppressed. And albeit, yes, race is a heavy code for that. Yeah, uh, nationality yeah. and other things. So that's my comment. Al, that's a really great observation. I'm glad you called and and made it. Uh, Bertrand Ross, talk about the overlap between the founders' idea that uh, that black people uh, who were enslaved in the South uh, at the time of the, the the ratification of the Constitution would not be able. Uh, to vote and and even uh, uh, not protecting much of the right to vote in the North for African Americans, um, uh, and the way that that sort of inter- overlaps with the the classist nature of what they were doing as well. They didn't think much of uh, people who were not educated, uh, who did not have money, and they weren't all that enthusiastic about protecting their rights either. No. <laughs> Al, I mean, Al makes an important point here, and I appreciate the caller, his point that he's making in terms of there's a strong and important intersection, interaction between race and class here. I described to you earlier in the program how the property elite designed a republic that would exclude the property list because of fear that they would um, um, support policies that would redistribute property in ways that were harmful to the property elite. That same concern emerges once you free the formerly enslaved individuals in the South, because they are now the new property list. They are now the new uh, new stakeholders in a, in a democracy. And in many of these southern states, they represented a high proportion of the states, these formerly enslaved individuals, in the sense that they were up to um, 50 percent of the people um, in South Carolina, for example. So if these folks were able to obtain power, then they may have a different view in terms of the property status of the elite and and their and and the and the importance of redistribution and debt relief and different 
ways of securing economic opportunities for the lower income classes. And I think that that issue persists today. We have to remember this is a, a capitalist system that we live in, in which there is huge wealth inequalities. And those who are at the top seek to hold on to their wealth by protecting against laws that might redistribute in the forms of taxation mm-hmm. or other forms of law that cost the rich or the wealthy more money and redistribute some services and funding to the poor. And so we have to understand our voting laws and our voting system partially through that lens, in addition to viewing it through the important lens of race. Mm. Uh, Ted Johnson, we have a Twitter comment that uh, is kind of related to this question of uh, elitism and, and voting. John on Twitter says, given the ignorance we see in far too much of those who do vote, both from the left and the right, we should consider finding a mechanism that would require a voter to prove they understood a ballot measure or the candidates on each part of the ballot before they could cast a vote there. Uh, I think John is probably well-meaning in what uh, what he's suggesting here, but uh, that, that does reinforce this idea that there are only some people who have, quote-unquote, earned the right to be able to. Uh, to cast their votes, and that that has its roots in the inequalities that uh, that were part of the nation at its founding. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, the you know if something's a fundamental right, then you shouldn't have to test your way into accessing that fundamental right. So those two things are intention. Um, the founders were concerned about this stuff. Uh, they they actually you know in the debates around the Declaration, debates around the Constitution, they often referred to the public as being too fickle to be trusted with the levers of government, and that's why a republic was necessary so that enlightened patriotic men could temper the 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 easily maneuvered and easily duped public uh, and and ensure government is stable. So there's that issue. Uh, The second one is what we've seen basically during Jim Crow, that if you say, okay, there has to be a bare minimum knowledge to participate in in this right, um, then the the tests that are devised, the questions that are asked, uh, the implementation of these tests will often be done in ways that intentionally discriminate or complicate the access to the ballot by folks who are the undesirable voters in the electorate. So something that's supposed to test one's knowledge of their ability to participate in in, um, uh, the franchise, um, questions about when was the nation founded or when was the de- you know the, the Declaration of Independence signed? Quickly become how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap? Mm-hmm. And you know the the same government that issues the test employs the people that administer the questions and check the, for correctness, and that is an opportunity to introduce some uh, you know discrimination there as well. So it's um the the testing is not foolproof, but I will say that there is a need uh, in the United States for a stronger program of civic education. And not just, you know, when was the the constitutional convention and how many branches of government, but are we training people how to be active citizens in our country beyond voting, beyond paying taxes, but being active, daily, responsible, participatory citizens in America in a way that is pro-democratic. And I think we've got some, some work to do there. And that way, if we've got a stronger program of civic education, you create better informed voters without requiring them to score an 80% on a on a, a test that some politician dreamed up. Mm. Okay. Uh, Ted Johnson of the Brennan Center and Bertrand Ross of the University of Virginia was really wonderful. Now, both of you here for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. 
Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks to associate producer Joe Hillman for his incredible help producing today's show. Come back tomorrow for Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel will join to talk about the state's historic opioid settlement and candidate for Detroit City Clerk Denzel McCampbell will join the program to talk about why he wants to be the clerk here in the city of Detroit. This is 1019 WDTFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.